0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.4, A Changing Colonial Outlook. Welcome back. We will get moving on the show for today in just a moment, as we prepare for the first episode in our Imperial Crisis series. However, first I wanted to make a few quick programming notes about the show. First. I have been busy revamping the website over the last several weeks, and it is now completed. The site's address is in the show notes of this episode, and indeed every episode. So just jump on over there if you want to check it out or see the sources I'm using. Now, among the things that I have added to the website is a Ko-fi account, where, if you are so inclined, you can now donate to the show. Now. Any amount that you're willing to give would be fantastic. I'm not going to stop podcasting or put the show behind a paywall if you don't give anything. But if you did give something, I would greatly appreciate it. It will go directly towards the production costs and the research costs that are associated with the show. So, if that is something you would like to do, just jump on over to the website and follow the links. Last time when we left off we discussed the end of Pontiac's Rebellion from the military perspective. Militarily, the war had ended through a mixture of diplomacy and a general desire on both sides to resume trade and bring peace back to the frontiers. However, 1763 and beyond cannot alone be explained under the subject line of Pontiac's Rebellion. Indeed, The rebellion, as well as a mounting debt crisis and changing politics inside of Britain itself, were about to lead to a major shift in British colonial policy. While Pontiac's rebellion was the catalyst for some of these changes, it is an insufficient answer to explain just what was about to happen. Beginning today, we are going to look at the cause of this shift in colonial policy as well as what shape those specific changes would initially take. Before we just jump in for today, I would like to take a minute to recap the Crown's current colonial policy. For several decades now, going back to Robert Walpole in the early 1720s, the official policy towards the colonies had been salutary neglect. The theory under this policy is that the British should take a more hands-off approach. By leaving the colonies to essentially administer themselves, it would allow local economies to flourish. Sure, the British knew that the colonists were going to cook the books in order to pad their own pockets. However, the idea was that the cost savings associated with looser enforcement, plus the growth of the colonial economies, would more than offset the losses from unscrupulous colonists lining their own pockets. And really, it worked well. The colonies did indeed flourish and grow. Drain the French and Indian War. William Pitt had pulled back some from this policy, as the war required that different approaches be taken. However, the colonists were largely mollified by the generous system of subsidies that Pitt provided. When the war ended, however... British policy towards the North American colonies shifted back towards the old system of salutary neglect. All was fine and well until 1763. So, the question that we are going to look at today is, what exactly happened in 1763 to disrupt over four decades of British policy towards North America? The Seven Years' War was truly a game-changer for both Britain and for their American colonies. The victory during the war had seen the British Empire cement itself as the dominant European power. They had won major victories over both the French and the Spanish, and had expanded to control colonies spanning the entire globe. In North America specifically, they had taken Canada. Following a trade with the Spanish, they now controlled Florida. The war had allowed the British to consolidate their position in North America and force out much of their competition. All of this winning, however, came with a price. Literally, in fact. As it turns out, winning proved to be a very costly venture for the British. We know that during the war itself, William Pitt had spent lavishly towards the war effort his system of giving valuable stipends helped float their allies both in Europe and North America alike. The American colonists, in fact, had become far more keen on the idea of meaningful participation in the war effort when Pitt's stipends had made doing so much more financially beneficial. At a minimum, this system removed the serious financial impediment that came with the colonial assemblies, sending off their most able-bodied men to fight, and potentially die, in a war. Beyond just the war, however, even once the fighting came to a close, the British now found themselves in possession of a huge amount of new territory. While patriotic zeal celebrated such conquests, pragmatism caused headaches for the empire's accountants. New conquests meant expanded colonial administrations. It meant armies to ensure that all these new settlements remained firmly in British hands. The actual cost of winning the Seven Years' War was a doubling of the British national debt. Britain, despite their victory therefore, was dealing with an increasingly serious financial crisis. This would lead to the very unpopular cider tax in Britain, that would cost George III his favorite advisor, as the Earl of Bute was forced out of the government. Now, to put this into some perspective, this is all going on during the springtime months of 1763, which just so happens to correspond nicely with the outbreak of Pontiac's Rebellion, which began in late April and early May of that same year. This is to say nothing of that Cherokee uprising that we had talked about a few episodes prior. With the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, George III and his ministry faced the considerable problem of how to both manage and secure their vast new holdings, while also trying to balance the economic side of the equation. Britain was tapped out financially. Even before London learned about Pontiac's Rebellion, the empire was stretched thin. Although peace had become the order of the day, one thing remained clear even before Butte departed. More needed to be done to secure the North American holdings. The answer was that the American colonies needed a professional standing army of British regulars. This was the only way they were going to secure the frontier from Indian aggression from the recalcitrant, scheming French in Canada looking to restore the French to power, and Spanish attempts at the reconquest of Florida. This solution likewise cleared up another concern for George III that had been pressing on him. Drain the Seven Years' War, the army had grown, and now, with the outbreak of peace, there were a lot of new officers who were critical to the king's popular support the last thing that he would want to do is cut them from the army as the result of a cost-saving measure. Having a permanent standing army in the American colonies gave the king a place to stick these officers, hence keeping them employed and keeping them happy. Of course, you're all now saying, Hey, wait a second. I thought that you just said that the British are broke. Armies are expensive. How does the crown plan to pay for all of this? As it turns out, this is not something that was lost on George III, Butte, or Butte's successor, George Grenville. Maintaining such a large army certainly was an expense that the British could hardly afford moving forward. George III had seen the reaction to the cider tax. The young king had little interest in upsetting the local population with an increase in taxes. However, there was an obvious solution to this problem. If the army was going to be protecting His Majesty's subjects in North America, they certainly could foot the bill for it. Therefore, the decision was made that Parliament would foot the bill for 1763, and that after that, the tax burden would be passed on to the colonists. Critically, we are not talking about the entire nor even the majority of the burden. Grenville recognized that a standing army in North America would have some benefit to the Americas, and agreed that they needed to pay a portion of the cost. However, he likewise understood that the army would serve the entire empire, and would be a key step in increasing the British projection of power globally. The Americans would contribute, yes. However, most of the project was still going to be paid for by the British government directly. Nobody was blind to the fact that this may prove unpopular in the colonies. However, it was reasoned that war had actually been extremely beneficial for the colonies. Money for the war had poured into the colonies and their economies had grown by huge margins as a result. Sure, the colonies already bore the cost of the local administration and the militia, but really, that was all they were covering. In the eyes of the leadership in London, they were simply asking for the colonists to make their fair contribution to the empire that they were a part of and gaining from. The need for a standing army, one paid for by the colonists, was only one in a series of changes that would appear in British attitudes towards their colonists in 1763. The year before, Parliament had pushed a bill to help cut down on smuggling and help enforce customs duties in the colonies. This had largely been ignored by just about everybody. However, beginning in 1763, renewed interest turned to the plan and it also saw itself being pushed through. This passed with little in the way of fanfare. All of this talk about how to pay for a standing army likewise ignores the question of the response from the colonists in America. For a long while now, the idea of a standing army has been anathema to the freedom and liberty of British citizens. However, when it came to conditions across the Atlantic in America, was there really any other choice? Everybody worried about the security of North America, and there appears to have been widespread acceptance, at least in London, that this was a necessity. We will certainly discuss this more moving forward, because the colonists are going to have a lot of thoughts about it. Though at the very moment, when first implemented, the colonists were in the middle of Pontiac's Rebellion and royal troops were looking pretty good at the moment. By the time that the fall of 1763 had rolled around, the government back in London was well aware of the state of affairs back in America. And suffice it to say, they were not pleased. Many of the things that we have discussed so far today were taking place right around the time that the crown was learning that tensions with native tribes had blown up into a full-fledged uprising. As we talked about last time, George III was not exactly amused that he had not learned of the uprising until late July. This caused the ministry to agree to Amherst's request to be recalled. Not so that he could see his wife as he had wished, but it is because the Crown was mad at Amherst for losing control over the Indian problem. Really though, during the summer months of 1763, George III was never thrilled with his ministry. He hated Grenville, and would have been happy to replace him. The king momentarily thought he was going to get his chance, when in October, Secretary of State for the Southern Department, Lord Edgermont, unexpectedly died. Though George III thought briefly about bringing William Pitt back, who suddenly was looking a whole lot better, George ultimately found himself stuck having to keep the ministry under Grenville. Edgermond's replacement for the position of Secretary of State for the Southern Department, that section of the government in charge of the American colonies, was the Earl of Halifax. At the same time that the British government was in flux at the end of August 1763, the government was also dealing with the news of Pontiac's Rebellion. The government in London had long been aware of expansion to the west of the Appalachians and the risk that it posed to the frontiers and the general peace. The British government had been clear previously that the area between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River was off-limits to settlers. However, this had come to little success. On October 7, 1763, an official proclamation was made clearly stating that colonists were to immediately cease settling in the region. This was, of course, meant to help address the single biggest grievance of the Indians. While on the surface the proclamation line of 1763 was a step in the right direction, it proved to have more bark than actual bite. The first problem from the perspective of the Indians is that the proclamation line was limited in its scope. George III was happy to kick the British colonists from settling the region west of the Appalachians. However, what George III was unwilling to do was extend such prohibitions to the military. The British were still claiming the land and were absolutely prepared to defend it. For the Indians, all they saw was empty promises. They had heard this story before. They heard it at Easton back in 1758. And now look where they were. British colonists had just blown off the same promises from Easton. Land speculators, including men like George Washington and future revolutionary Richard Henry Lee, continued to attempt to acquire land in the valuable Ohio country. Furthermore, the proclamation line had several glaring defects to it. It stopped settlement west of the Appalachians and told those who were already there that it was time to leave. However, it lacked any kind of meaningful enforcement mechanism. It is great and all to say get out, but actually forcing somebody to leave is another matter entirely. Likewise, there were questions about those who had an argument that they already had a valid claim. Were they now to be dispossessed of that claim? Several colonies already had claims in the region, claims that they were unlikely to simply abandon. Despite these difficulties, it was seen by the Earl of Halifax as being the first step in reforming the relationship between the Indians and the American colonists. Indian wars were expensive for the empire, and Halifax was determined to find a solution to reduce the risk of them happening again in the future. The proclamation line, indeed, did little but make a complicated situation that much more convoluted. People continued to move, albeit a bit slower, right across that demarcation line. British troops, doing their best to police the situation, could do little more than slow down the traffic as more and more settlers moved west. Often simply ignoring British law, these settlers would become a serious headache for the British, as they clearly were not interested in following royal proclamations. This would, in turn, make the West exceptionally hard to govern. Questions over a standing army, and who is going to pay for it, are going to come back again and again over this season the colonists will ultimately have a lot to say about it. Likewise, proclamation lines are great at hopefully preserving the peace, but it would not be a revenue producer. This really gets us to the crux of the problem between the British and the colonies, heading through 1763 and then into 1764. The British needed to find some way to deal with their skyrocketing debt something that standing armies nor proclamation lines were going to be able to accomplish. Even if the Americans contributed to the army, the British were always going to be picking up the biggest part of the tab for it. Grenville recognized that he needed to raise more revenue from the colonies. He had already taken steps to shore up custom duties. However, that alone would not be sufficient. In August, he commissioned a study into the effects of changing the amount of tax on molasses imports. The Molasses Act had been around for some time now. However, it was seldom enforced. Grenville, needing to raise revenue, and it being easier to adjust existing laws rather than ask the House of Commons to pass a new law, saw this as a possibility. A few weeks later, Grenville commissioned a second study to look at the effect of a direct tax on the colonists through the use of a revenue stamp. This stamp would be affixed to all paper, from legal documents down to playing cards. There was nothing terribly novel about the idea of a revenue stamp, and indeed they had long been a part of life back in Great Britain. Before moving on, I want to take a quick second to make a clarification as we are going to be talking about the subject of taxation a lot. We are going to be using the terms direct and indirect taxation moving forward. Here is the difference. A direct tax for our purposes is when Parliament collects money directly from the colonists, say with a revenue stamp on paper products. The individual colonist will have to pay for that stamp an indirect tax would have been more akin to a tariff. Something that the colonists would ultimately pay, but it was going to be passed on to them by the merchant, who was the one who was going to pay the actual duty itself. We are going to spend the rest of today, and then moving into next week looking at all these new acts that were being put in place in order to raise revenue. Well, none of them are going to draw the response of the final act that we are going to look at, the infamous Stamp Act. These are nonetheless going to help us look more closely at the changing relationship between the British and her subjects in the Americas. Before we push forward and begin a discussion of the Sugar Act, it is also worth considering the fact that all of these new attempts to raise revenue are coming when the economy is depressed across the entire empire. As expensive as war had been to the government, it had meant a good deal of money pouring into the economy. This includes the American colonies, where a good example of this is those stipends that Pitt had sent to the colonies for their active participation in the war. The economic downturn really cannot be overstated either. Planters throughout the colonies had made large investments during the war years, when credit was easy to come by. Now, they were left with a lot of supply and a collapsing demand. All throughout New England, the post-war depression was being acutely felt. New York, which had become the epicenter of the North American war effort, felt the decline sharply as peace broke out. Pennsylvania, much to their relief, was able to depend on the flour trade to keep them solvent during these rough years. In the other central colonies where commercialized farming had become key, they could survive, though at a much-reduced level. After years of commercialization of farming practices in the colonies, there was an increasingly sudden movement back to the practice of subsistence farming. Further south, in Virginia and Maryland, tobacco prices plummeted. Following a rough patch during the 1750s, a result of the war and then-subsequent poor harvests, The problem continued right into the 1760s. Well, some, like George Washington, turned to land speculation that was stunted by the proclamation line of 1763. Really, the only place in the colonies that was completely untouched by the economic downturn was South Carolina, as rice remained a staple item that saw little in the way of a drop in demand. During this period, as prices for slaves plummeted, you see a corresponding jump in the number of slaves being held in South Carolina. The downturn in the economy was likewise not unique to just the American colonies. Rather, it was an empire-wide issue. Combine that with the fact that the British had a very serious problem with their rapidly growing national debt. The debt had reached such a high level that the problem became simply making the service payments on the loans. The servicing fees alone were enormous. As interest continued to compound, the crisis grew worse as the British struggled not to drown under their own national debt at a time when the economy empire-wide was sinking. Facing down a growing debt crisis, raising taxes and enforcing those already in place became critical for the empire at large just to keep their head above water. However, Issues of solvency of the Treasury aside, this all came at a time when everybody, colonists included, were facing an economic slowdown. To say that the timing of everything was unfortunate would be an understatement. There had been the previously mentioned attempts to shore up colonial revenue. However, prior to 1764, this really means trying to cut down on smuggling. Custom duties in the early 1760s were not even coming close to touching the cost of colonial administration, equaling only a quarter of the required cost. Cutting into the rampant smuggling helped, but came with its own problems. Americans hated the intervention that often came with the heavy-handedness of the British interference. In much the same vein as privateering, crews that managed to capture one of these ships' smuggling goods were entitled to keep a share of the profit. This meant that enforcement was seen as overly aggressive, much to the considerable annoyance of the colonists. As a further slight in 1764, the decision was made that smuggling cases were not going to be heard in the colonies. If you go back to episode 3.10, when we discussed piracy, we have seen similar policies before when it came to the colonies hearing cases about pirates. Judges and juries were sympathetic towards the smugglers, making convictions difficult to come by. As a result, tighter enforcement also meant moving the trials from colonial courts to vice admiralty courts. In these courts, royally appointed judges made the decision without the need of any of those pesky rights getting in the way, like juries. Stamping out smuggling was never going to be enough to make a dent in the British debt. Grenville knew and realized that he was going to need to do something more dramatic. Hence, the studies into the Molasses Act and the Stamp Act. Now, we are going to spend some significant time with the Molasses Act. And then we are going to spend a few episodes on the Stamp Act, and the very vocal colonial response. However, to wrap up for today, I want to look at the lesser known of these acts to come out during the early spring of 1764, the Currency Act. The colonies had been using paper currency for a while now. We first discussed this back in episode 3.2, when we talked about the introduction of it in Massachusetts. The colonies, working with a serious lack of hard specie, turned to the prospect of paper money to bolster the economy. The practice had spread out of New England and had moved down to the south. Paper currency was now a common thing throughout the colonies to help pay for individual debts. The French and Indian War had caused the rapid proliferation of paper currency throughout the colonies. Problems with this system would arrive when colonies, and specifically we are talking about Virginia, turned to printing more and more money. They did not really concern themselves about the corresponding inflation. British merchants, having this paper currency forced upon them, were keenly aware that the inflation of the currency was devaluing their debts. So, what about Virginia's currency made it such a problem for the British merchants? When the Currency Act was proposed, it specifically targeted colonies to the south of New England. So, up in Massachusetts, where paper currency had been in use for decades, the Crown took no action to stop it. Virginia's currency was really nothing more than an IOU. Unlike the currency in Massachusetts, It was not backed by actual hard metal. The Virginia money was redeemable as payment towards tax debts. Now, drain the war. This had not really been a big problem. The wartime economy had been fantastic for the Virginians, thanks, of course, to William Pitt and his subsidies. However, the war was now over, and the open flow of specie into the colonies had all but dried up. The House of Burgesses set the exchange rate initially at 125 pounds to 100 pounds British sterling. This meant that the 100 pounds of British sterling was worth 125 pounds in Virginian currency. However, as the war ended, the price of sterling notes became more and more expensive. The issue became that as money dried up in the early 1760s, Inflation took over. Whereas at one time, 125 pounds of Virginian currency would net you 100 pounds sterling. Just a few years later, the equation had changed, and that same 125 pounds of Virginia currency was now worth 160 pounds sterling. This was a very significant devaluation of the debt, as Virginians were obviously all too happy to stick with that original exchange rate. Whereas, as initially planned, that £125 of Virginian money would settle £100 sterling worth of debt, that £125 of Virginia currency now covered 160 worth of debt in British sterling. As everybody entered into a post-war recession, the British merchants were now anxious about their American investments. The last thing that any of them wanted was American colonists to start trying to pawn off devalued colonial bills as payment for debt. Realizing that the colonial currency was now a potentially expensive problem, the decision was made that it needed to go. The Currency Act of 1764, therefore, announced that the currency was to be phased out. Colonial legislatures could no longer declare currency to be legal tender either, meaning that the legislature could no longer require that it be accepted as payment for debt. The phase-out of the Virginia currency would come through the tax system. As the money was paid into the system, it would be removed from circulation. Though Virginia was the intended target of the new legislation, it applied to all of the colonies south of New England. It should be noted that New England had its own regulations coming from the Currency Act of 1751, which did limit the issuance of paper currency and the circumstances in which it could be used. This was a very serious problem for the colonies. Beyond just Virginia, the colonies had become dependent on the use of paper money. The Currency Act certainly did nothing to address the serious shortage of specie in the colony the announcement of its forced phase-out led to immediate devaluation of the currency, a very unwelcome development for colonies already dealing with a stagnant economy. Despite this, however, there really never was any wide-scale protests. Not that there wasn't grumbling and complaining, as there certainly was. However, as we are going to see soon, there would never be the popular uprising and the general anger towards the Currency Act that we are going to see coming from the Stamp Act. Indeed, for the first two years after the passage of the Currency Act, there were only a handful of protests regarding the Act, none of which would reach the size nor the scope of the protests that we will see surrounding the Stamp Act. Everything that we have talked about today is going on under the backdrop of an economic depression, which was happening during the ongoing uprising by Pontiac. While the response was somewhat muted compared to what we are about to see, this marks a clear delineation point in British policy towards the North American colonies. The era of salutary neglect was officially over per historian Fred Anderson. The war had reinforced in the minds of men like Grenville and Halifax and the others with a voice in the matter that the colonial assemblies were only interested in supporting the British Empire if they could personally profit from it. These men pointed to the failures of Loudon and Braddock to raise funds and men from the colonial assemblies. Well, William Pitt had succeeded, it only came as a result of the large amount of money being pumped into the colonies through his stipends. Even right now, in the middle of Pontiac's Rebellion, which was ongoing, once again the colonists seem reluctant to get involved. Recall Pennsylvania, for instance, that, while willing to supply men for defensive measures, were far more reluctant to use these men for offensive missions. As Anderson continues, what Grenville and company never do is make any attempt to discuss with the colonists what support they may be willing to give. Rather, the decision was made to rule by fiat and impose restrictions without the meaningful involvement of the colonists, who were now going to find themselves living under these new restrictions. These feelings that the colonists were not contributing were nothing new, of course. This entire podcast has been about the colonies really not wanting to get with the program. However, where the American colonists seem to have missed the mark is just how much the situation had changed in the last few years. Back when we were talking about the Massachusetts colony during the reign of Charles II, there really was never that much urgency over the situation. Sure, the Crown was annoyed at their wayward colonists, but the fact remained that the colonies were just that, little more than a minor annoyance. Following the French and Indian War, however, Parliament seemed to fully understand that the situation had changed. The American colonies were no longer some unimportant backwater across the Atlantic. It had become a critical holding in the empire. A critical holding that the British now expected to support the greater overall empire. We have been asking the question of the role of the American colonies in the greater empire for some time now. As we stand in 1764... That question is becoming all that much more important on both sides of the Atlantic. Next time, we are going to turn our attention to the American Duties Act. The relationship between the British and their American colonies was changing, and soon everybody involved was going to know it. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we look at British attempts to tax the colonies.